Let's go inside the vault, the design vault. And they had this requirement for the Black Box Theater. You know, the project came with this with its approval, but it got a uh, zoning bonus for having the theater in the base of extra height. It was a give back to the community that was written into the zoning. And we always knew it was going to be a theater and we always knew it was going to be for a nonprofit arts group. And that arts program as part of the building was like in the DNA of the project from the very beginning and informed a lot of the decisions moving forward, became part of the personality of the building throughout, not just the theater itself. This is my guest, John Zimmer. I'll share more about him shortly. In this episode from the Design Vault, we highlight John's project in Jersey City, New Jersey, called The Lively. The Lively is a mixed-use 18-story tower in Jersey City's Powerhouse Arts District. The building features residential living situated above retail and public arts spaces. The entry portals at the base define the black box theater and residential portions of the building. Double and triple height lobbies open up to the street through curtain glass walls at the base. The building's deep and varied openings and bronze windows and frames give a wonderful complexity to an otherwise familiar building form. The structure features custom white brick with darker mortar, which gives the edifice a warm residential appearance. The brick's well-scaled modularity complements the organized and complex facade. The project's aesthetic and exterior elevations are reserved, yet elaborate, familiar but novel, unpretentious, yet elegant. Hi, I'm Doug Pat, and this is Design Vault. John is a partner and director at Fogarty Finger Architecture and Interiors in New York City. He's a graduate of Cornell University School of Architecture. He's been practicing for over 20 years. He focuses on design, construction technologies, building codes, and project management at the firm. John spent the early part of his career in San Francisco. He later moved to New York City, where he worked for architectural firms and owned a small practice. He designed a wide variety of award-winning public and private sector works that range in size from studio apartments to city blocks. His resume includes dozens of cultural, educational, commercial, and residential projects, and is balanced between new construction and renovations. So welcome, John. Nice to have you with us today. So tell us a little bit about Fogarty Finger Architecture in New York City. Sure. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So Fogarty Finger was founded just 20 years ago, pretty much on the nose. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary. And it was founded by two SOM alumni, one of whom, Chris Fogarty, was a uh, kind of ground up corn shell guy at SOM. And the other, Robert Finger, was uh, commercial interiors. They got together, and that basic structure has kind of defined the DNA of the firm ever since. It's very much a firm that offers both ground-up architecture and interiors. And you'll find many firms that offer one or the other, but not both, and not both in equal proportion. So our firm is very serious about both. The firm is about 130 people right now, has grown a lot in the last 10 years. The size of the projects has grown a lot. And I think that's a testament to the work we've been doing, but also the attitude of client service that comes initially from Chris and Robert and from SOM, just trying to deliver for our clients the product that they need while at the same time creating an architecture that satisfies us. And what kind of projects do you guys take? On the ground upside, we're happy to take a look at anything. <laughs> Most of our portfolio is multifamily residential, although we have a handful of commercial office buildings as well. We do building repositionings. On all the ground-up stuff, we also offer the interiors as well. 
on the commercial interior side, and I don't work on that side of the office, but they do work for some of the uh, largest landlords in town and do both test fits and build the suit spaces. There's a strong hospitality element developing. So really a multidisciplinary practice, looking at a lot of different project types. And you guys have more than one office. We do. There's an office in Atlanta and also a small office in Boston as well. And where are you guys located in New York City? We're in Tribeca on Walker Street. Been there for 10 years or so, eight years, something like that. So what's your role in the office currently? So I'm a director. We are divided into somewhat of a studio system, a loose studio system, and there are two ground-up studios. I lead one of them. I have a team of about 20 people. I'm involved in all aspects of the projects from day one till CFO, basically. I would imagine your hours are pretty long with 20 people <laughs> they, working for you. <laughs> they, they still are. Although obviously there's a team of very hardworking people with me that put in even longer hours than I do. So let's dig in and talk about the building. Tell us about the Lively in Jersey City. How did your office get the project? The project had gotten a preliminary approval with a different owner and a different architect. The people that became our client, Lenar Multifamily, when they took on the project, looked at the planning and also the facades, but I would have to say more than anything, the planning of the building and thought it was problematic. It's a difficult site to do residential floor plans, and it's got an acute corner there at Warren and Stephen. So challenging site to get efficient residential layouts in. We put an alternative plan in front of them that really increased the efficiency of the building and the commodiousness of the residential layouts, basically. So it wasn't a competition to get the project? It wasn't a competition. It was a, an invited RFP, but I think it was the strength of the proposal that we put forward that got us the job. So could you give me a little history of the location? Sure. The Powerhouse Arts District in Jersey City is so named because there is a somewhat iconic powerhouse there. It had been a, an industrial area that was targeted for redevelopment. And they had design standards for the entire district that were meant to maintain that character, not necessarily industrial, but loft style, focus on the arts. The entire district has a strong focus on the arts, which is part of the reason we have the Black Box Theater in the Lively. It's experienced a lot of new development over the course of the last decade, and it's pretty great today. When I first started going over to the powerhouse 10 years ago, I'd get out of meetings and the sidewalks would be deserted. And today it feels like Brooklyn. It feels like the East Village. I mean, it is incredibly, for want of a better word, lively. <laughs> so it's a great neighborhood now, and it's all happened in the last decade. It's an exciting thing to have been a part of, honestly. So scope of the project, what were the client's programmatic requirements? Well, 180 residential units. Lenar is one of the biggest home builders in America, but they were mostly doing suburban subdivision work. They got into the urban markets. I can't tell you exactly when, but they were still a little bit new to it when we took this project on. And they were ambitious. They wanted to be at the absolute top of the market for a residential building in Jersey City. And Obviously, as any developer does, they wanted to maximize rentable square footage and get the most bang for their buck. And they had this requirement for the Black Box Theater. You know, the project came with this with its approval, but it got a uh, zoning bonus for having the theater in the base of extra height. It was a give back to the community that was written into the zoning. And we always knew it was going to be a theater and we always knew it was going to be for a nonprofit arts group. And that arts program as part of the building was again the DNA of the project from the very beginning and informed a lot of the decisions moving forward, became part of the personality of the building throughout, not just the theater itself, really. How long has the building been finished? 
I guess it's about two years. Is the theater getting used? It does. Yeah. That's great. So let's start with the site. I would imagine there are no unique topographic features, relatively flat or or not. Well, it's relatively flat. The unique topographic feature would be that it's below the 100-year flood elevation. That's always a big deal. And the sidewalks there, I think, are at about five feet above sea level. So flood protection, resiliency, ground floor uses, how do you enter the building? How do you avoid nuisance flooding when it's not a 100-year storm? Those were all big aspects of the design of the ground floor or the pedestrian experience. So breakaway walls? There are deployable flood barrier systems designed in. So the flood elevation is seven feet above the sidewalk. In the event of a massive, take up Hurricane Sandy kind of thing, they would deploy these flood barrier systems. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they keep them in storage and they come out and they bolt them to the building or they spread them around the building. They can be self-supporting and they have to be deployed in a certain amount of time because it's an emergency response system. So big part of all the projects in this area. And what about zoning codes? You had mentioned you had a height issue. Yeah. So the building got, I think, 65 additional feet for having the black box theater in it. That was one zoning aspect. You can see the cantilever here over the sidewalk. There was a sidewalk widening requirement in the zoning. So that made it obviously challenging. You've got 17 stories of residences coming down over a cantilever that allows the sidewalk to be wider at the base. That was an interesting challenge. There's a little bit of parking in the building that came from the zoning. So obviously some structural challenges there as well whenever you're putting that many residences over the top of a parking garage. The second floor here that you see through the window, that is also designated art space in the zoning, also a requirement. So I don't do tall buildings. How many extra floors to 65 feet get you? I think it was basically five because the top floor is an amenity space, rooftop amenity, which was specifically permitted by the zoning bonus. I think it really made the building. The massing and the expression of these mid-range buildings is a little bit tricky. They're not as tall as they want to be to be a tall building, and they're not as low-rise as they want to be to be a low-rise building. And I think the extra stories really help to give it a little bit more verticality. It's a better piece of architecture for it. So tell us about the building plan. You said there's a sharp corner. Yeah, a very acute corner. There's two lot lines, and it is a corner lot. So right where you have your corner window with two exposures, there's a very acute corner. And I can't remember the actual degrees, but anytime you have a building, and it's not just the corner that's a problem. And in fact, the corner isn't really a problem. You may not be able to put a sofa in that corner, but the corner per se is not a problem. It's kind of a cool room to be inside of. But what it means is that the apartments on each of those two different streets are on different geometries. And so if you're going to have a rectilinear apartment on streets that are at such different geometries, that all crashes into each other at the corner and at the corridors and at the courtyard. So it becomes very challenging to plan buildings that feel sensible in projects that have this kind of site. So how long did the planning process take? So city review, design to construction, what was kind of start to finish? I would say it was probably 14 months, maybe 15 months from RFP to groundbreaking, something in that range, which is kind of typical for a building this size. And construction, how long did that last? That was about 24 months, I think. So let's talk a little bit about aesthetics, style. What did the client say to you? Did they have any ideas? Were they showing you images? Did they like buildings that they wanted you to look at? Our main client point of contact was also an architect. <laughs> so he didn't want to impose a specific sensibility. He wanted to see what we would come up with. 
And our office does this kind of work. We don't really do much historicist work. It's all modern. And in fact, a contemporary design is part of the zoning in the Powerhouse Arts District. They're not looking for a recreation of a 19th century Main Street because that's not what this part of town ever was. From its get-go, there was never any question it was going to be a contemporary building. As far as where we drew our inspiration from and what we were looking at, you know, I mentioned the difficulty of the massing for these mid-height buildings. I think the uh, gathering together the window openings into these vertical slots helps to emphasize the verticality of the building. We have this prominent gold portal for the black box theater and the building entrance. And that became an idea that we repeated throughout the facade to frame these moments on the facade. And I think generally we try to be pretty rigorous about how the facades are designed. Obviously, you've got structural continuity, but then you've got what always happens in residential design is you've got living rooms that are one width and you've got bedrooms that are a different width. And so a strictly rational grid is probably not going to serve you well for a residential building the way it does for a commercial building. So you're often trying to find a way to manage that. If your interest is fundamentally in having a kind of rigorous and rational facade, you're trying to find a way to manage those partitions hitting the wall and what does that mean? And at the same time, I think creating a facade with movement and interest and dynamism and that play on the facade, I think, was always an important part. And you could say it, it is part of the emphasis on the arts and the theater and dance, but also obviously just an interest in creating something fresh. Yeah, it's playful. So was there a city review of the aesthetic? There was. Yeah, they loved it. Ah. <laughs> they, they loved it from the get-go, honestly. It was great. I think the uh, planning board there has seen a lot of different things. <laughs> I was quite happy to see a building that was elegant and carefully composed and well-made. I'm pretty sure we got a uniform, unanimous vote of approval at the planning board, and there were no negative comments about the aesthetics. What did you guys bring in? Did you bring in boards with images or 3D? They weren't set up to have digital presentations back when this was going through. They are now, obviously, everyone. All of the local jurisdictions became fully digital because they had to. Back then, it was easels and boards, and you sat there with a couple of easels and flipped the pages and described what you were doing. And But we had renderings, certainly, full 3D visualizations of the building that we presented and a palette of materials. They're very interested. In fact, in Jersey City, they require you to bring the actual physical materials you intend to build with to the planning approval. So why did you guys choose brick? I mean, you probably could have used another material for the exterior facade. We could have, certainly. You know, there's many things. We do do facades out of lots of different materials, obviously. But for residential buildings in particular, I think the scale and the intimacy of brick are a sure way to give the building a residential character. It makes people both potential tenants and non-tenants on the street and everyone have a very warm response to brick almost instinctively. It's one of those things that the mind already knows, right? People respond to it quite well. I think the flexibility of brick was part of it for this. Obviously, that acute corner right there is a custom shape. You can just do that in brick, right? You can just say, okay, I've got a corner that is 72 degrees and you just do it. <laughs> you just make it. So that part of it, I think, is pretty great. And the flexibility of the color in this particular case, this is a custom colored brick, semi-custom. We had a lot of flexibility. It's a coated brick. So we had a lot of flexibility with the coating and coming up with the exact color that we wanted, which was a lot of trial and error. There were actually months of back and forth on getting it just right. And 
You know, I do think color is incredibly important and you can spend a year and a half designing a building and two years building it and then you get the color wrong and all anyone sees is the fact that the color is wrong. So it's incredibly important to get right. It allowed us to do that. You know, if you're going to do a porcelain, here are the three porcelains, you know, and this is what you're going to get. It also helps, I mean, the way brick turns corners. We wanted to have these gold shrouds in some areas and not in others that frame certain openings. Doing returns at window openings in brick is incredibly easy because it's a brick. You just turn the corner. In porcelain or terracotta or other materials, it becomes quite difficult. Is it just a shadow gap at the corner or is it two flat panels coming together to meet? So I think having that ease of turning corners supported the design concept of these intermittent gold shrouds. Now, was I correct? The window frames are bronze? Well, they're painted aluminum, but yeah, they're, they're, bronze, yeah, aluminum. they're bronze colored. There are a series of framed out window openings as well. Yeah. And what material is that? That's also aluminum. Okay. Yeah. We have yet to do a building with actual sheet bronze. When I read it, I was like, is that just the color? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is the great thing, though, actually, is color is usually free. If you're going to do something out of aluminum, the one thing you can afford to do is change the color. That's a great point. Color's free. What I really like about this and the use of masonry is it afforded you the ability to make some of these window openings really deep. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Right. Especially with the curtain wall glass. I mean, it's uh, really pretty. I think you get that play of light and shadow. You know, in a curtain wall building, you're struggling to get a couple of inches of depth, right? The economics of that and the constructability of that are unrelenting. But between the depth of a brick cavity wall automatically gets you seven or eight inches. And then these shrouds project, I forget, but let's just say it's another six or seven inches. Now you've got 15, 16 inches of depth, which creates a wonderful shadow on the facade and really helps to punctuate the facade. That kind of plays into my next question. So what were some of the unique construction details on this building? Yeah, certainly these shrouds. I think you see them more now. I think they were less common when we first did them. They are quite deep, which made the attachment to the building. I'm not saying more difficult, but it had to be done differently. A lot of times these will be clipped onto the window extrusion and the window manufacturer can simply provide them. You know, obviously the wind wants to tear these things off of the building. So there's a decent amount of load on these that required some careful detailing around the attachments of them. So there's some structure on the interior that gets tied back there's into a, yeah, the Yeah, these, the these basically go back to structural studs as opposed to the window. And there's a, a heavy-duty anchor clip extends into the shroud that helps to make it rigid and attach it to the building. These deep soffits at the overhangs, you know, obviously something that had to be looked at fairly carefully. Generally speaking, a brick cavity wall is a well-known thing. Builders know how to build it. Architects know how to detail it. But when you start introducing these kinds of deep shrouds, the corner windows, in order to make those successful, what the window manufacturers want you to do is take a big square window and put it next to a big square window. And now all of a sudden your corner window has 12 inches of metal in the middle of it. And it looks like a column instead of a window million. So detailing that to make it keep the sight lines narrow and keep it elegant, that was a detailing challenge that took a lot of time. Making sure the flood protection doesn't become too intrusive. That's a detailing challenge. There were a handful of things. And what about sustainability for the building? Well, it's a PTAC building. PTACs are the through wall air conditioners there. They're environmentally not great. So starting from that, you have a difficult time making it the most sustainable building in the world, unfortunately, electric PTACs. But there are other green features in the building. Certainly, you see this in a lot of buildings at this point, but super efficient lighting, formaldehyde-free, no off-gassing materials, locally sourced brick natural material, locally sourced green roof, significant stormwater management features. 
it's not a leader in environmental design. Sure. It has, I, was, uh, I guess I was wondering if it leaders. was something the city was looking for. It was not a requirement, but I think there's enough consciousness about it at this point that people want to incorporate these features if they can. So when you guys drew the building, you're working in 2D and in 3D? Yeah. So this was drawn in AutoCAD. We weren't working in Revit back when this was first drawn. Are you now in Revit? We are. Yeah. We model absolutely everything, but we would do that mostly in SketchUp, Google SketchUp. And that would be a parallel. You know, you would be doing both. You'd be modeling it in SketchUp and drawing it in 2D AutoCAD at the same time. So you guys haven't been in Revit for long then? A couple of years. The more people I talk to, I'm in ArchiCAD working in 2D and 3D. I never learned Revit. I was lucky to learn how to use a computer, frankly. I mean, yeah, so. I mean, I don't know Revit, <laughs> so, but the team does. I certainly learned AutoCAD along the way and MicroStation randomly enough. I don't even know if that's still around, to be honest. But, I don't uh, know either. <laughs> but most of the people that come through here are on Revit. I'm yeah. like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, it's, it feels like a done thing. So do we see any masonry on the interior of the building? Not on the, in the interior walls. I will say one thing, since this is Brickworks, the client led the decision that anything people could see from their windows would also be brick. So the interior courtyards are, a lot of times what you see is brick on the facades and EFIS or something like that, something cheaper on the interior elevations or the lot line elevations. The uh, courtyard facades are brick. We have light well, that's all brick because the client wanted to make sure that anytime someone was looking out a window, what they saw was brick. And they were happy to pay for it. They felt quite strongly that that's what it needed to be. So, John, you've been in New York City for quite some time. You worked for a number of firms, including having your own office at one time. What advice might you give a younger version of yourself now that you know it? <laughs> now, that I, now that I know everything? <laughs> I think you go where your heart leads you. There are so many ways to be an architect. There's not just one way and there's not one right way. And I see over and over again that people find ways that make them happy to do this job. And I do my thing. Other people do their thing. There's not one answer. And don't be afraid to not pursue that other answer for yourself. Yeah, it's interesting, too, what you learn in school and then what you learn as a practicing architect. You can take those skills and do an awful lot of things that aren't just architecture, too. I say that a lot. I have a teaching YouTube channel and I've been talking about that for years. We learn how to do so many things and you've got to do so many things well and you've got to know so many things about so many things, right? It's a really challenging business and you're always learning. The synthesizing of a lot of different pieces of information, I think, is a skill that has broad application. And looking at things from a design perspective is an exceedingly rare <laughs> quality out there in the world that I think has broad application. So it's great to be trained as an architect, even if you don't stick with it. And look, I've always loved it. I would encourage young people to stay in the profession because it's a great thing to do with your life. But people make their own choices. Well, John, it's been great to have you here. Thanks so much for your time. Where can people go to learn more about Fogarty Finger Architecture and Interiors and yourself? Go to our website for sure, fogartyfinger.com, and look at our portfolio. And there's all kinds of interesting information there. Of course, we have an Instagram page and every other thing that's available out there in the world to learn about a firm, you can find it online. Well, great, John. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. If you learned something today, share this episode with a friend and give us a rating. And review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. If you want to find out more about today's project, visit glengarry.com forward slash design dash vault. That's G-L-E-N-G-E-R-Y dot com forward slash 
design-vault. Want even more inspiration? Take a look around glengarry.com while you're there. Glengarry is one of the nation's largest brick manufacturers and an industry leader for its diversified product line of more than 600 brick products. With inspiring photos, useful resources, easy search tools, helpful design studios, and more. I'm sure you'll find the inspiration you need to stretch your imagination. 